We've been working our way through our core values as a church. And these are the things, like we said, that should be the heartbeat of our church. They should drive us, fuel us. And so we've seen that we should value prayer. We should value biblical truth. And today, for our third one, we're going to see that we should value God's glory. And that's what we're going to be looking at in Ephesians chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there to Ephesians 1 if you haven't already. Why should we value God's glory? Why should this be one of the core pieces of our heartbeat as a church? Well, we're going to look at a few passages today that should show us why we should value God's glory. And what we'll see is we should value God's glory because God does everything for his glory and because his glory is our greatest good. We should value God's glory because God does everything for his glory and because his glory is our greatest good. And this is a huge subject. There is so much more that we could say on this. But let's, let's pray before we begin to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Lord, you are a glorious God. You are greater than the greatest minds can imagine. Language is inadequate to describe you, Lord. You are so glorious. But thank you that you have revealed truth about yourself in your word. And we thank you that as we look into your word, we see your glory and we see that you glorify yourself in all that you do. And we see that that is a good thing. Lord, give us understanding today. Open the eyes of our hearts to understand these truths. And Lord, may your spirit work through me to give me clarity of speech as I preach so that these things would be understandable, though they are deep and wonderful. Lord, help our hearts to be ready to receive them and give me grace and strength to proclaim them. And Lord, I do ask that you would remove in me anything that would stand in the way of that, any pride, any sin, any... Um, faults of mine. Lord, speak through me from your word today, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as we begin to look at this to say why should we value God's glory, it's helpful to understand and make sure we understand what God's glory is. So what is God's glory exactly? We'll look at Ephesians 1 Verses 3 through 6, Paul says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
that he favored us with in the beloved. So the first aspect of God's glory that we need to understand is that God's glory is the praise he deserves. It's the praise he deserves. And we won't look at this for too long because we probably understand this aspect better than most. That glorifying God means praising God or worshiping him or honoring him in some way. And we see that in verse 6. Paul says that God does these things to the praise of his glorious grace. So he's doing these things that we would praise or worship him or glorify him. And another passage that makes this very clear, we could look at many passages, but Philippians 2 verses 10 to 11 says that Jesus was exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there people are worshiping Jesus, and that is glorifying God the Father. So God's glory is the praise that he deserves. But that's not the only meaning of God's glory in the Bible. And this is going to be key to understand as we look at this topic. So let's look at Exodus chapter 33. And 34, you don't have to turn there because I'm going to have it on the screen, but you can turn there if you want to. But this is such a good passage to see that God's glory is who he is. It's not just praise and honor that we give to him. It is actually who he is. So in the context of this passage, God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt He makes a covenant with them there at Mount Sinai, and Israel immediately breaks that covenant because they worship a golden calf. They make this calf, they worship it, and God is rightfully angry about that. And he says, I will now destroy Israel. And Moses pleads with God. He intercedes for Israel, and he says, don't destroy them. And God turns his anger away and has mercy on them, though he does punish them. And then in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Moses says, Please let me see your glory. And I've highlighted some words here that are key words we're going to be looking at. So Moses asked to see God's glory. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So Moses asked to see God's glory. And how does God answer? He says, yes, I will show you my goodness and my name. These are things describing who God is, his good nature and his name. You know, we don't think of names a lot today as being super significant a lot of times. But especially in the Bible, with God's names, they reveal who God is. God's name says something about who he is. And so let's go on. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So, here we see God is equating his goodness with his name, with his glory. 
God's glory equals who God is. Then the Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the the first tablets which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one must be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So here's God. He's revealing his glory to Moses. And he says this is proclaiming his name. And then look at what God says. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshipped. So here, Moses asked to see God's glory. God himself defines his glory as his name and as his goodness. And then when he reveals it to Moses, what does he say? He talks about his compassion, his grace, his patience, his justice, his holiness, These are all aspects of who God is. So God's glory is who he is, especially as he reveals it to people in some way. If we think about this for a minute, we'd probably understand it a little better. If you think about an athlete or a singer, part of their glory is who they are. When an athlete runs, we say, wow, they're so fast. Or when someone sings that has a beautiful voice, we say, wow, her voice is so beautiful. That's part of who they are, and it's part of their glory. And when they display it, we say, wow, and we give them glory. And that's the cycle, because notice how Moses responds. God reveals his glory, and it says Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshipped. This is the cycle that you see over and over and over again throughout the Bible. God reveals his glory, who he is, and we respond with glory, praise, worship, honor, and it's this continuing cycle. So, and that is even what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. God has shown us his grace in Christ. He's blessed us in Christ, and verse 6 says that we respond with praising his glorious grace. We experience the glory of God's grace and we respond with the glory of praise. So that's what God's glory is, two aspects of it that we need to keep in mind as we go through this. God's glory is who he is and we respond with the praise that he deserves, with glory and honor and worship. So let's look at our first reason for valuing God's glory like we saw in our big idea. We should value God's glory because God does everything for his glory. And the first thing that we see in Ephesians chapter 1, we're back there, 
is that the Father, God the Father, works for God's glory. Let's look at verses 3 through 6 again. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the Beloved. So God the Father works for God's glory. Now, why do I specifically mention God the Father? Well, as we're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, it's important to understand the structure of this passage because it's written in a Trinitarian structure. Verses 3 through 6 talk about the Father's work in redemption. Then the next section, verses 7 through 12, talk about the Son's work in redemption. And then verses 13 and 14 end with the Spirit's work in redemption. So this is really like a hymn of praise, praising the Trinity for the different ways that the members of the Trinity work out redemption in history. And so it's important to understand that, and we're actually going to come back to that idea of the Trinity later. But this first section shows that the Father blesses believers with every spiritual blessing in Christ, He chose believers before the foundation of the world. He predestined believers to be adopted. And why does he do that? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is why God the Father has done these things. So that those who receive his grace will praise his glory. And what is that glory? It is his grace that he has shown us. So many theologians say that this passage is the Father planning redemption, or they call him the architect of redemption, that he wrote out the the blueprints of redemption in eternity past. And the end goal of everything that he planned was that we would praise the glory of his grace. And then the next section, like we said, shows that God the Son works for God's glory. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. We have redemption in him, speaking of Jesus, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. So the Father plans redemption, and the Son accomplishes redemption. Verses 7 and 8 Talk about Jesus shedding his blood on the cross so that we could have the redemption that God had planned. And that redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. And so if someone turns from their sin and they put their trust in Christ alone, that means that they will actually be redeemed. This plan of redemption didn't just stay on paper or stay in the Father's mind. 
Jesus, the Son, actually came and he accomplished that redemption so that we could benefit from it. And then verses 9 and 10 kind of zoom out from our individual redemption and it talks about the Father's plan again to redeem actually the entire universe. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, is at the center of it all. So in eternity past, God the Father planned out an entire plan for the universe. And when that plan is fulfilled, what is it going to look like? Well, it says that everything will be united or summed up or gathered together in Christ. What does that mean? Well, we don't really have time to unpack all of that today, and honestly, I don't know that my brain can comprehend everything that that means. But, in short, it's the idea that all of the disorder and the chaos and the hostility and the sin that is in this universe will be removed when Christ rules over everything perfectly. Everything will be united together in him and under him because he will remove sin and its effects. Believers will enjoy this redemption forever and unbelievers will suffer righteous punishment from Christ forever. And in that way, all creation will be properly united and ordered under Christ's rule and he will be at the center of it all. That is the Father's plan, and the Son will make it happen. And then verses 11 and 12 talk about one more aspect of our redemption. It says that we have an inheritance in Christ. And that word, when it says that we also have an inheritance, theologians debate how it should be translated. It's hard to know because it could also be translated we have been claimed as an inheritance. So we're not sure which way is best. Are we, did God claim us as his inheritance in Christ? Or have we received an inheritance in Christ? Well, there's passages to support both. Even in this chapter, verse 14 talks about our inheritance. And verse 18 talks about us being God's inheritance, his special possession. So either way, verse 11 goes on to say that all these things happen according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. So this verse clearly teaches that God controls every detail of time and space and history. And why? Why does he control things? What is the purpose of his plan? Look at verse 12 so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. So it's the same reason that we saw in verse 6. We, God does these things so that we would praise his glory, that we would glorify him for the glory that he has revealed to us in Christ. And then as we look at the final section Verses 13 and 14, we see that the God, the Spirit, works for God's glory. So let's look at verses 13 to 14. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
And when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So the Father planned redemption, the Son accomplished redemption, and here the Spirit applies redemption to believers and assures us of its reality. So if you have heard the gospel and you believed and trusted in Christ, the moment you did that, it says that the Holy Spirit sealed you as the promised Holy Spirit. He took the redemption that Christ achieved and he applied it to you so that you were forgiven of your sins when you trusted in Christ. And this is amazing. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee or the down payment is the idea of our inheritance. So the future inheritance that we have been promised in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God himself is the down payment for that inheritance. That is mind-blowing. It's the idea of like you would put a down payment on a house. Angie and I recently went through that. You put down this huge chunk of money saying, I guarantee I am going to pay off the rest of this house over time. That's the down payment. That's what God has done for us. He has promised us this amazing inheritance in Christ. And he says, to prove to you that I am going to give you the full inheritance, here is the Holy Spirit, God himself, to live inside you as the guarantee, the down payment of that inheritance. How amazing is that? I remember when I was in Bible college, we were looking at this passage in one of my classes, and the teacher said, you know, if this verse wasn't in the Bible, and, we, and I had a student that said, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit is just a down payment for our inheritance. He's only part of the inheritance that we're going to receive. I would probably take him aside after class and have a little chat with him about blasphemy, because this almost sounds blasphemous. He said, but it's in the Bible that God himself is the down payment of the full inheritance that we're going to receive. That is amazing. And so that inheritance, we don't have time to look at it now, but how wonderful, how amazing must it be if the Holy Spirit himself is the down payment for it. And why does he do these things? As the end of verse 14 says, it is to the praise of his glory. To the praise of God's glory. All three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are all working together to glorify themselves, to glorify God. God does everything for His glory. And specifically, God glorifies Himself by displaying His grace. We saw that in verse 6 when it said that God does these things to the praise of the glory of his grace. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 just a little bit later. And Paul gets even more specific about this. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what we just saw there is that God saves to display his love and grace. Paul says that naturally all people are spiritually dead. We live under the influence of the devil and the world and our flesh, and we are rebels that are under God's wrath. So why in the world would God give us new life in Christ? And why would he raise us up, as verse 6 has, and seat us with Christ in heaven? This is incredible. Why would God show us such love and mercy and grace to people like that? To people like you and me? Well, this passage actually gives two reasons. Verse 4 says that God did this because of his great love that he had for us. God did these things because he loved us with a deep, rich love that we cannot fathom. And then verse 7 says that he did this so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So for all of eternity, we are going to be trophies of God's grace, displaying the love and the kindness and the grace that he has shown us through Christ. God is glorifying himself in that way. He is received, or revealing, displaying his glorious grace through us for all of eternity. And so you might ask, well, did God do this because he loved us? Or did he do it because he wanted to glorify himself? Well, the answer is yes. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. They actually go hand in hand. God's love for us and his desire to glorify himself perfectly align. And we'll get to that more in a minute. For now, though, this get this in your head. If God has saved you, he has done it to display his love and grace through you for all eternity. In other words, God will glorify himself for all eternity by showering us with love and grace in Jesus. That is amazing. God saves us for his glory and he saves us to display his love and grace as he pours it out on us. But that's not all. 
God also created the church to display his wisdom. In the rest of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about how it is God's plan to unite Jew and Gentile together in Christ, in this new humanity that's called the church. And then in chapter 3, Paul talks about how God has sent him out as an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and that is part of God's plan for building up the church. And then look at what Paul says about the church in chapter 3, verse 10. So Paul says that God sent him out to preach the gospel, to build up the church. Why? Verse 10. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So this too, really to me, is mind-blowing. What we saw in chapter 2, verse 7, is that God wants to display his love and grace. He does it through giving us love and grace and new life in Christ. He's going to display that through all of eternity. And it doesn't really tell us who the audience is. I assume it's everyone, everyone that's in heaven. Angels and people, everyone. But Ephesians 3.10 is a little bit different. It says that God wants to display his wisdom. And he's doing it right now. And how's he doing it? Through the church. God created the church to display his wisdom. And who is he displaying it to? To the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So the church is like a theater. We are up on the stage and God calls us to live out this life of unity and love as we are united to each other in Christ. And as we do that, the audience is watching and that audience is actually angelic powers. Angels are watching the church to see God's wisdom displayed through us. Boy, does that change how you think about church. We are a theater putting on the display of God's perfect wisdom. And we do that as we live in unity and love together. And as we do that, the angels themselves look at the church and they say, Wow, God is so wise to work that way through those people. So why did the Father plan and the Son accomplish and the Spirit apply redemption? To the praise of God's glory and grace. And if you have trusted in Christ, why did God give you new life in Christ? to display his love and grace in you for all of eternity. And why did God create the church, including our church, Rocky Mountain Bible Church? Why do we exist? To glorify God by displaying his wisdom to the angelic powers that are watching God's plans unfold. God does everything for his glory. He is more passionate for his glory than anything else. He is more zealous for his glory than anyone else. 
And because of that, we too should value God's glory. If we want our values to align with God's values, if we want our heart to be in line with God's heart, that means that on an individual level and a church-wide level, our supreme value must be the glory of God. It has to be that. But at this point, some people would say, well, if that's what God's doing, he's just selfish. He's an egomaniac who only cares about being praised and being glorified. And anything good that God does for you is just God trying to use you so that you'll praise him. So is it really selfish for God to glorify himself? Is it wrong for God to passionately pursue his glory above everything else and do everything with that goal? Well, there are many reasons that it's not wrong, but I would say that the greatest reason is that God's glory is our greatest good. We should value God's glory because God's glory is our greatest good. Before we jump into the positive side of this, we need to think a little bit about the negative side. Because God does not need us to glorify him. That's not why God made us. We could also say it this way. God's glory does not depend on us. There's a lot of passages, again, we could look at. Probably the best one is Acts 17. Paul is preaching here to people in Athens. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is He served by humans' hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God doesn't need us. He does not need a single thing from us. Not even praise and worship or glory and honor. And so, if God created us to glorify Him, we might think that that means He needs us to glorify Him. But He doesn't. Why not? Well, it's because of the Trinity. We looked at the Trinity earlier in their work in redemption, but the Trinity is key here. All from eternity past, before there was anything else, and there was only God there was the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and they lived together in perfect harmony, perfect love and joy. And they were praising one another and enjoying one another and glorifying one another before there was anything else. And so God did not create this world because He said, man, I really need more people to worship me. Or I'm lonely. I need some more friends. No, God had perfect love and fullness in himself. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our honor or our praise. And that's why when we glorify God with praise and worship, it doesn't make him glorious. It recognizes that he is already glorious. And we respond appropriately to that. So if God does not need us to glorify him, 
why did he create us? Why did he create this universe to glorify himself? It's because God's glory results in our blessing. God's glory results in our blessing. God's glory does not depend on us, but our blessing depends on God's glory. Because as we saw in Ephesians 1, from eternity past, God mapped out a plan for the universe, every detail of history and space and time, and he did it for his glory. And what was the result of that? How does that plan affect us? Well, Ephesians 1 says that it affects us by God blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God choosing people to be saved. God predestining people to be adopted into his family. God giving us redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God forgiving our sins. God revealing his wisdom and his plan to us. God making us his inheritance and giving us an inheritance. God sealing us with the Holy Spirit. All of these blessings and millions, millions more. Every single good thing that we experience flows out of God's desire to glorify himself. That is where our blessing comes from. This is why when we looked at Ephesians 2, we said that God's love for us and his desire to glorify himself, they're not contradictory. They go hand in hand. As God is glorified, his blessings flow down to us. In eternity past, like we said, God was perfectly happy and joyful and satisfied and content in himself as the members of the Trinity perfectly loved and glorified and enjoyed each other. And out of that overflow of love and goodness, God wanted to create this universe with people in it like us so that he could share his love and his joy with us. That's why God made the universe. And in his wisdom, God decided that the best way to share his glory with us to share his love and his peace and his joy was to create this world that we live in and to plan history the way that he has. This isn't just nice theories in our heads or words on paper. This is reality. This is the universe that we live in. It exists because God wants to shower us with his love and his grace and his goodness. And as we trust in Christ, as we experience the glory of who God is, and as we give him glory with praise and honor, we find ourselves increasingly delighted with God himself, increasingly satisfied with him because as we do that god welcomes us into that relationship 
He welcomes us into his own love and joy and glory. God didn't create the universe because he needed it. He didn't create it just to receive glory. He created it to share glory. And there's another cycle that we saw earlier. Here's another one. As we experience God's glory in who he is, that leads us to find love and joy and satisfaction and blessing and glory and so on and so forth. And that leads us to respond with praise and worship and honor. And the more that we worship God, it circles back. The deeper we go into knowing God and experiencing more of who he is, and it takes us deeper into love and joy and satisfaction, and we respond with more praise and glory and honor, and it's this ever-increasing, beautiful, wonderful cycle, and that's the way God made the universe to work. And yes, sin has broken it, and we don't experience it like we would want to, but if we trust in Christ, This is our hope that someday God will come and he will remove all the barriers to this and he will dwell with his people once again here on earth and we will experience the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of his love and his joy and his grace forever and ever and ever. And we will worship him with hearts that overflow with love and gratitude forever and ever. This is amazing. This is why we should value God's glory. Because God made us to be satisfied in him in this way. John Piper is a somewhat famous preacher and he famously says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's good. I like that. It's true. I prefer to say God's glory is the greatest good of God's people. Because it is. There's a quote from me. It's not worth much, but take it with you. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's glory is the greatest good of God's people. And that's why we should value God's glory. Because God does everything for his glory. And because his glory is our greatest good. God doesn't seek his glory because he's lonely or because he needs it. He doesn't seek it because he's greedy or selfish. He wants us to glorify, to honor him, because he wants to bless us for doing that. He is perfectly good and loving and generous. And so as we think about this as being a core value for our church, we have this as our core value statement about God's glory. God's glory is the greatest good of God's people. God is the only proper object of worship, and he alone is supremely satisfying and worthy. God does all things for his glory, so we strive to do the same with hearts that love, 
honor and rejoice in God. So is that you today? I know I've needed a heart check this week as I've thought about these things. But do you really believe God's glory is your greatest good? Do you treasure his glory and seek it above all else? God does everything for his glory and so should we. And when he glorifies himself, it's because he loves us. And he wants us to find joy and satisfaction in his glory. Like I said, there is so, so, so much more that we could say about this. This literally affects every aspect of our lives. And there's so much more we could go into. But if you have questions about this or thoughts about it, as always, please come ask me. I am more than happy to talk about these things with you. But let's pray now. And ask God to open our eyes to see him as supremely satisfying and glorious and to help us value that glory. Let's pray. God, we praise you today that you are a God of love and goodness and generosity. We praise you that you do not need anything from us. And that is a good thing. That means that when you ask us to do things, you're not using us like tools, but you are loving us as your children. And you, are, you desire our blessing. And what a beautiful way that you have made this universe that we would experience your grace and your love and your mercy and we would find ourselves satisfied and delighted in that, and that we would praise you and worship you, and we would experience yet more glory and grace from you. And Lord, we eagerly look forward to the day when we experience the fullness of that, when Christ returns, and he sets up his kingdom here on this earth, and you dwell with us, and we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But in the meantime, help us, give us a hunger for you and for your glory. And help us to live and do all things to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.